Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. Nearing the end. Matthew 25. I'll be preaching and teaching this morning from the English Standard Version, the ESV. And we're going to try something a little different for the main gathering. Uh, my high schoolers, my junior hires, we do this so they know. Uh, but I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it. And some of you guys, you've heard this before. I've heard this before. Some of you guys are like over it. You're glad we don't do it here. But it's a beautiful tradition if you understand what's going on. So after I read God's word, I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord. Then you guys are going to say. Oof. Got like a couple, couple of Presbyterians left over here. Um, so, I got to stop myself. Okay. Um, yeah, so I'm going to say the word of the Lord. You guys are going to say thanks be to God. And the reason for that is because God has made himself known to us. Not just this dead religion thing of like, uh, the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Lord be with you also. No, like God spoke and he gave us a book and we can know him and we get to gather on Sundays and hear from our God, right? I was, I was reading about a pastor who says he runs upstairs and I'm not sure how his kids take it, but he runs upstairs on Sundays and says, we get to hear from God today. Like we get to do that. Okay. So I hope you're with me in it. I like it. It's going to fill my heart. I hope my junior hires. Don't let me down. Just kidding. Love you guys. So Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. The title of this sermon is The Kingdom is Here, in parentheses, Carry the Fire. You're intrigued. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, 
Truly, I say to you, as you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have the oracles of God, that we have your very own word. God, your word is invincible. It is infallible. It is inerrant. God, your word never fails. And so, Lord, right now we come underneath your word. We want to know what you would have to say to us. And God, I admit, I know my own inadequacy for the task before me. I know my own shortcomings and my own insecurities. And Lord, I just ask that your spirit would come and would teach us. Um, God, help us. Help me to get out of the way. Help your word to speak um, to us. Would we feel in our bones the truth of your word? Would it change us, God? And Lord, I ask that your kingdom would come. Would your kingdom come here in Carpinteria as it is in heaven? Would your will be done, God? We want to hear from you. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Jesus stands and looks at his disciples. They've been together now for three years, and never before have they heard a man speak with the kind of authority that Jesus speaks. And never before had they seen the signs and the wonders performed that he's doing. Never before had they seen demons tremble and flee like they do around Jesus. And never before had they seen the implausible sinners drawn in, but the presumptively righteous just walk away. It's been three years with the man, Jesus of Nazareth. And now it is three days before he will go to the shameful cross. In his last teaching, directly for the disciples, he has his will set to go to Jerusalem. He's going to go to the cross. But his heart is looking forward to a greater day. His heart is looking forward to a greater day. And so he opens his mouth and he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. The glorious coming. Jesus knows it's three days before he the sinless and eternal son of God hangs on a tree for the sins of the world. And he spent the last hours just imploring and teaching his disciples about what it's going to be like when the world ends to wait expectantly, to be ready for the day he returns. And now he gives them the final teaching. And so we must start 
where Jesus starts. When the Son of Man comes in his glory. And notice, it's not if the Son of Man comes, it is when. There is coming a day where Jesus Christ will personally, physically, visibly, and suddenly return to the earth he created. The earth that was created by the eternal word spoken by the Father. Redeemed according to the eternal plan of the Father to send the Son in the love and unity of the Spirit. To now, on that day, consummate and reunite the heavens and the earth once and for all. And not only will he come personally, physically, visibly, and suddenly, but he will come gloriously in his glory. Okay? Revelation 19 gives us a picture of this. It gives us just a taste of that day. So, like, just have a taste of this day. Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire, and on his head he has are many diadem. Those are crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. I don't know what that means, but he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword to which, with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with an iron rod. He will t- tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Heaven will be torn open and the Son of Man will come on a white horse, the faithful and the true with a robe dipped in blood and many crowns on his head and with all of his angels, and he's going to have a tattoo written down his thigh that says, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He will come. And on that day, no one will question his authority. So we begin our teaching where Jesus begins with the glorious coming of the Son of Man in his glory to sit on his glorious throne. And he rightfully takes his place on the throne to judge the whole world, all peoples, in righteousness. Verse 32 and 33. Before him will be gathered all the nations, And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. So I want to draw our attention to that phrase, all the nations. In the Greek, uh, the phrase is panta ta ethne. 
You guys want to say that? Say, panta ta ethne. Hey, you guys know Greek. So, uh, but this phrase, it means all the nations are everyone, all peoples, all peoples. It appears a couple times that you're probably familiar with because uh, we've talked about it quite a bit. The first is Matthew 24, verse 14. What has to happen before Jesus returns? You ever wonder that? And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, to pontata ethne, and then the end will come. And it appears again in that super famous uh, verse in one of the great commissions, Matthew 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of pontata ethne, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Everyone will appear before the king. And he's going to separate them. The king will separate them as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. Which you guys all know what that's like, right? No. None of you guys know what that's like. Nobody's, unless anybody here is a shepherd farmer. But uh, So, uh, you can imagine sheep and goats when they're real little. Uh, they, look, they look very similar, but once they grow up, they start to look different. So the shepherd, a good shepherd has to separate them. He has to separate them. And the good shepherd, he is going to separate the sheep from the goats. And Jesus here, he's alluding to, he's alluding to, if you're like steeped in the Old Testament, if you read it through you, it comes to mind, you're like, wait, he's alluding to, he's, and he's fulfilling that one prophesied day that's in Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34, where the true shepherd would search and seek and find all his sheep, and he would rescue them. And he would bring them into the everlasting good pasture. He's using this language that's throughout the Old Testament of that judgment day, of that day where, uh, where God would return and set all things right. And it says that the king is going to put the sheep on his right, which is a sign of authority. A king rules with his right hand. Um, but he puts the goats on his left, which is a bummer for me because I'm left-handed. But uh, you guys actually know the Latin word for left-handedness? Sinister? It's not messed up. Um, <laughs> but the true king, he's going to put the sheep on his right to rule with him. He's going to put the goats on his left. Now, we've, we've already read through the text. So we're, we're about to get into some heavy stuff. And I know, I, know, I know how I would feel if I was sitting there. It's how I felt the last few weeks having to like read through this over and over again. You, you kind of want me to tell you how in my study I secretly discovered, I secretly discovered that all this stuff it says here doesn't actually mean what it clearly says, right? Like, okay, that's pretty heavy. Like, where's the, where's the way from underneath this? Right? Like we, we read it and we're like, hmm, the least of these. Who is the least of these? And when you ask that question, if you're like me, maybe you're not. Maybe you're much more holy than me, probably. But when we ask that question, we're like, the least of these surely couldn't be this person, right? Couldn't be that person. No. Like in the original context, okay, least of these is probably referring to the disciples in that moment. But are we as Christians called to... Uh, are we called to love just the easy-to-love people? No. Are we called to love, um, love those 
for whom it comes naturally. No, like the least of these, least of these is probably that person that came into mind. Like, like I don't want to love them, right? So I'm, I'm not going to say how it doesn't mean what it clearly says it means. And I know that these words of Jesus, they, they cause like real fear and trepidation in our hearts. And honestly, at first, they are supposed to cause that. It causes a real, us to walk in a real weightiness. But there is beauty here. And there's something forming in the tension of this text that will sit in it. I believe we'll find it to be what we long for and know in our hearts to be true. So, we'll take the words of Christ as they come, and they're going to shape us instead of us shaping them. So we start with verse 34. The king, then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Normally, normally I skip past this. It was because I had to read through it so many times that I really had to sit with this. And so we start here, and where we start, it's clearly the first thing the king says, it's a foundation of grace. Where the story starts is a foundation of grace. But it's, it's like an uncomfortable grace. Like all true intimacy is at first, it's an uncomfortable grace that a holy God would want to come after me. Like, I know me. I know, I know the things I've done. I know, I know the stains I feel on my own soul, but that a holy God would want to come after me and be so close to me that he would indwell me, that he would want to be with me forever, like with me like in the same room, on the same couch, not just some separate room in a house. Like God wants to be with me, that he would die for us, that he would live with us forever. It's an uncomfortable grace. Because when we encounter a holy God, we're made so aware of our shortcomings. But it's a grace and it's an uncomfortable grace. It's an intimate grace. It's a grace that's a gift. It's a choice, and it's based on nothing in us, but everything in the heart of the Father. That's what this grace is. And this is a text that begins with the glory of Christ coming, Christ's glory is coming, and the grace of the Father to give the kingdom to those who he would call blessed. That is what this is. And as I was sitting with this, as I was working through this, um, words, words in scripture started coming to mind, and I realized, I think, I think Paul like imbibed this, like drank deeply from this and sat in it and stewed in it, and it, that led him, that this, these words of Jesus, I think led him to write under the inspiration of the Spirit these words that we're familiar with. For by grace, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, 
so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, his poema, his masterpiece. I want to get intimate, a little grace that makes us uncomfortable. You are God's poetry. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. The king will say to those on his right, come you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He prepared it beforehand that we should walk in them. So we start with a foundation of grace. And now we are going to get into the words of the king. And they're heavy, but we're going to sit in the tension of the text, right? Trusting that God's word is forming something beautiful and right and true in us. But before we go, that, go there, we need to be aware of two errors. Of two errors when it comes to this passage. The first, the first error is, is the role of works. It's the role of works. Some have used this text to try to say that we're really at the end of the day. You can dress up Christianity uh, with all this talk about grace. You can talk about it's nothing we deserve, but only the gift of God. But they use this text to say, you know what? At the end of the day, it's really about the good stuff you do. That's really what it is. Who are, who are those? Who are those who are God's? It's those who clean up their act, get it together, and start doing the right stuff. Get on God's program, and you'll be saved. That's what it is. Some have used this text to say that. But verse 34, it serves as a guardrail. It serves as a guardrail to keep us from the false gospel of salvation by works. You cannot be saved by the good things you do. You cannot. You cannot. In verse 34, within this very text, serves as a guardrail to keep us from that false thinking. But another issue, another issue is that what we do doesn't actually matter. What we do in this life doesn't actually matter. What I do, what I do Tuesday night by myself, what I do Friday night out, what I do does not matter. How I spend my time doesn't matter. I, I believe it. I believe it, so I'm good. Check off the box. I'm good. We can't, we cannot intellectualize this passage. And what I mean by that is the things we do clearly, the things we do clearly are of eternal significance. Like you have to do theological gymnastics to read through this text and come out saying, yeah, works have no role in the Christian life. It doesn't matter what you do. These words, you have to do gymnastics to think that, to read these words and think that our works have no eternal consequence in the life of everyone. So one error is the role of works. We have to avoid those two false ways of thinking, that it just means just clean up your act, just do the right thing, but also it doesn't mean that, role, that works have no role in our life. The second error is that this is a text simply about how to get to heaven, right? So we kind of freak out because a lot of times we read the Bible like this, like, Okay, tell me what I got to do to get there. I'll do that. Check off that box and do that. This, like, that kind of idea is kind of, it's, very, it's completely foreign to Jesus. It's not, it's not this thing of, like, 
I did this and I did this, so now I get to heaven. There's, it's unthinkable in this. How we live today is of eternal importance. It's not about this, this, uh, this ethereal thing, pie in the sky, heaven that you'll one day get to as long as you check off these boxes. That's just foreign to the mind, the teaching, the thinking of Jesus and the entire Bible. It's not about just how to get there one day. So we avoid these two errors. And now we turn to the words of the king. Before like, we read the speeches, I want you to see like, there is literary genius here. Like, there, uh, everything, everything is just in the right place. Everything. There's this beautiful symmetry between those he speaks to on his right and those he speaks to on his left. Between you did and you did not. And this book, this book was written 2,000 years ago, right? Like, I struggle to find things to read that are as beautiful as this. So I was nerding out about all the literary features of this during the week. Let's turn to the text. To the sheep. To the sheep. Verse 35. For, the king speaking to the sheep. Receive the kingdom. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Now let's, now let's look at, before we see their response, let's skip down to verse 41. Look at what the goat, he says to the goats. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared from the, for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Hungry, thirsty, a stranger, naked, sick, and in prison. Jesus says either inherit the kingdom you blessed by the Father, or he says, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire. For, for, either you did these things or you didn't do these things. And I want these to hang in the air for a moment. There's something forming in the tension, like you did these things or you didn't. You did or you did not. So we can say three things, three things from these words of the king. First, we have a real responsibility to feed the hungry and to give water to the thirsty, to clothe the naked, to welcome in the stranger, to visit those in prison. We have that responsibility. 
inherit the kingdom. For you did all these things. Depart from me, for you did not do these things. And the second thing we can say, the second thing we can say, and I think we need to remember this, I think we need to remember this, it's that these are good and true and beautiful things. Right? It's not like these are, these are like, oh man, I really got to do that. Like you feed someone who's starving. Somebody has no water and they're going to die of thirst if somebody doesn't help them. They can't help themselves. And so you give a person water. And these are things, these are things since from the first sin we've been trying to figure out. We've been trying to eradicate it. And there's been a lot of different solutions to it. It's maybe we need just better education. Or if only, uh, if only we had this kind of uh, political system. Or if only we did this. Or if only we did that. And it's been thousands of years and we haven't been able to figure out how can we feed the hungry. There's still hungry people in this world. How can we take care of the least of these? The least of these are still having their lives taken away daily. How can we protect them? How can we do that? We haven't been able to figure out, and it's what everybody's longing for, right? I want to see a world where there's no hungry people, and I want to see a world where people aren't thirsty. I want to see a place where somebody has the right clothes to wear for the condition, for where they live, and I want, I want the strangers, I want them to feel loved. I don't want anybody to walk through this life without hope and without knowing there's a God who loves them. I want to visit people in prison who, whether it's for a righteous thing of preaching the gospel or whether it's for manslaughter, whatever it would be, I want them to be visited because I want them to know grace reaches down into there. These are good and true and beautiful things. And I think sometimes we need to just, we need to get out of our own heads and just capture the beauty of God's commandments the beauty of God's design for things, that he doesn't intend for people to be hungry and thirsty and naked and without friends, without family. These are good, true, and beautiful things. And lastly, we can say, in some way, every single one of these acts is an act of fidelity to Jesus. You see it throughout the text. It just hits you over and over again. You did this for me. You clothed me. You gave me water. You welcomed me in. When I was sick, you visited me. And in a real, profound, mysterious way, every single one of these acts of kindness, these acts of grace, the good benevolence of humanity done for God, but not having a thought that this is exactly to him, is actually done to Jesus and for Jesus. Now, the key, I believe, in the text is found in the twin surprises we hear from the sheep and the goats. Both of them, both of them, uh, and another stroke of literary genius, both of them are, are just shocked. They're surprised, and they say something back to the master. Verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him. 
and it hit me while I was preaching this first service. I hadn't, can you imagine the day God calls you the righteous? You hear those words from God, then the righteous will answer him. Saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The sheep, the righteous, they say, they say this in surprise. And we need to know, a lot of times, at least for myself, and I think it's a common misunderstanding of the parable, we think they're, uh, they're thinking, they're surprised because they're in heaven. They're surprised because they're going to be with the king in the new heavens and the new earth and all recreated things. Um, that's not what this text is saying. That's not what this text is teaching. The reason they're surprised is because they say, wait, when was that you? When was that you when we, when, when did we do, when did I feed you, Jesus? When did I clothe you? When did I give you shelter? When did I visit you when you were sick? And the reason they're so surprised is because they never look to these things for their salvation. They never look to these things for their salvation. And so when they heard this words, inherit the kingdom prepared for you by the Father from the foundation of the world for you clothed me? They say, wait, when was that you? They never look to these things for their salvation. Verse 44, the goats reply. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? And did not minister to you. Then he will answer them saying. Truly I say to you. As you did not do it to one of the least of these. You did not do it to me. And the goats they're surprised for the same exact reason. They say. Wait. When was that not you? When, when did we see you do that? When, when were you hungry and we didn't do that? When were you thirsty? And the implication is what's underneath the subtext, what they're saying is this. We would have done that if we knew it was you. Like, if I would have known that got me into heaven, I would have done that. If I would have known that that was what it took, I would have done that. What I would do is exactly what I have to do. And this is, I will obey, therefore I can get stuff. That is the heart of the goat's. Part of the sheep is, I am saved by grace. All of my life is yours. When was that for you, though, Jesus? And it reveals that our actions flowing, welling up, they well up from our hearts. Our actions flowing from the heart always betray us and show what we really believe. You can't get around that. This takes us away from just the intellectualization of, I believe that. If you believed that truly in your heart, that's where your actions flow from. So right now, if, if you're hearing this and it's just 
dread and condemnation, if you're not doing the works of the kingdom at all, the solution isn't, oh, I got to just partner up with God and help save the world. No, you need to be saved. You need a new heart because it's from the heart that actions flow. If you don't do the works of the kingdom, the first thing isn't to just, I guess God to start doing it. No, you need a new heart. Or I want to I come at it this way. So follow, follow with me as we come at it this way. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe the kingdom is here? Like the kingdom is here. Jesus said in Matthew 4 verse 17, he said, as he was beginning his ministry, repent, turn away from and turn towards, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. It's coming. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is breaking into this earth. Feed the hungry and give water to the thirsty. Clothe the naked. Welcome the stranger in. And visit the sick and those in prison. These are all works of the kingdom. We see it throughout the Old Testament. We see it in Micah where he says uh, to, can't even remember it, Micah 6, 8, look it up later. So, uh, but he says, take care of orphans and love widows. Hate evil, cling to what is good. Do these things, they're the, they're the sign that the kingdom has come. So do you believe the kingdom of God is here? Not not just heaven, pie in the sky, one day ethereal, my spirit floats around without a body. It's completely foreign to the Bible. The kingdom of heaven is where the rule and the reign of God is operative and active. Not just far off, but here. Like, Jesus is really king. And so that changes absolutely everything. And it says, it says, so because Jesus is king, because I'm not king, because the world is his kingdom, it's not mine. My money, it's not mine. My singleness, my marriage, my relationships, they're not mine. My whole life is not mine, for I was bought with a price. Therefore, I will glorify God in my body because he is king. But how, okay, so let's, let's be real. How are we going to make it though? Like, how are we going to do the work of the kingdom? You step outside, there is so much wickedness outside and in this room and in our hearts there are too many hungry people. One of you cannot feed every hungry person in the entire world. You cannot save everyone. You can't. It's not just a team up with God partnership and you can do it. You can bring the kingdom. You can save people and stamp God's name on it. You can't. But how are we going to do it? We see the works of the kingdom. They need to be done. There's wickedness everywhere. There's too many hungry. There's too many thirsty. And it's all overwhelming. It's completely overwhelming. So how are we going to do it? How are we going to make it? 
How are we going to do the work of the kingdom? I recently uh, read a book called The Road by Cormac McCarthy. And uh, it's post-apocalyptic fiction, obviously. But uh, it's a post-apocalyptic story about a nameless father and his son making their way through America. They're making their way through America, and it's so beautifully written, but it like, it plums the depths of despair and of the bleakness of life. Like, everything's been destroyed. There's not enough food. There's not enough water. How, and it's, it's asked the question, like, how do the father and son keep going? How are they going to keep going? And how, how do they live differently than everyone around them? How are they going to live differently when everything is falling apart around them? Well, in one part of the story, one part of the story, the son asks his dad, like, are we going to do the evil things that the other people do? Because they've seen some really wicked things. And he says, dad, are we going to do those things? And his dad replies to him, he says, no, of course not. No matter what? No. No matter what. Because we're the good guys. Yes. And we're carrying the fire. And we're carrying the fire. Yes. Okay. And later on, later on in the book, it says this, near the end of his father's life, the dad tells his son, um, it's a wretching scene. It's hard. But he tells his son he's going to have to go on without him. There's not enough food for both of them. He's not going to make it. He's going to go, have to go on without him. And so the son says to him, says, I want to be with you. The father replies, you can't. Please, you can't. You have to carry the fire. I don't know how to. Yes, you do. Is it real? the fire? Yes, it is. Where is it? I don't know where it is. Yes, you do. It's inside you. And the way the son held on, the way the father and son, they made it through the bleakness, the despair, there's not enough food, there's not enough water, is that they believed that they carried the fire, that there's hope. You have to believe you carry the fire. But this, 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 it's not, it's not just a motivational speech. I'm not up here to like rah, rah, let's do the kingdom of God. We can do it if we just believe. No, that's not what this is. That's not the story of the Bible. Just, hey, come on, gang. Part, let's all partner up with God and we can save the world. We can do it, stamp God's name on it, and then it changes. That's not the story of the Bible. That's not. And we have to get the story right. We have to get the story right. If we're going to do the work of the kingdom, we have to get the story right. So I was reading book, and it's on First and Second Kings in the Bible. And First and Second Kings deals with all the kings of 
Israel, God's original kingdom. He deals with all of them, and the kings are uh, mostly rather atrocious and awful. Uh, but it's the story of God's kingdom and all these different things. And so there's much to be said about the concept of kingdom there. And the author, Peter Lightheart, he wrote this in the introduction. The message of the prophets is not, Israel has sinned, therefore, Israel needs to get its act together or it will die. The message is, Israel has sinned, therefore, Israel must die. And it's only hope is to entrust itself to a God who will give it new life on the far side of death. Or even Israel has sinned. Israel is already dead. Cling to the God who raises the dead. That is the story. You can't just start doing the work of the kingdom. You need to believe the right Story. And what I'm telling you is the story that you know to be true of the universe. You feel it and you long for it and you want it to be true. And the best thing I have to tell you is God has made himself known and it is true. You were made by the king of the universe. And he made you to love him and keep his commandments. Out of love, he made you. It wasn't because he was lonely. Out of love. But you have rebelled against the king. You have committed cosmic treason against him. And we have all not done the work of the kingdom. Both in the things we shouldn't do and the things we should do. Yet the king, the king, knowing this, said, I will renounce my kingly rights, and I will give them up and I will come as a peasant for you. And he was thirsty, and he was hungry and naked, a stranger, and he was willfully imprisoned to a cross for you. And the king died. But on the third day, the king rose from the dead. And I think we need to, we've heard it so many times, we need to realize Jesus died. But the sacrificial atoning work of Christ has paid for all of our sins. It conquered the tyranny of the devil, set us free from his tyranny, and then he was dead, but because of who God is, because this is the truest story, death couldn't hold him, and he conquered death, and he rose from the dead. And if you're going to clap, clap. And so the kingdom is here, but not fully And the kingdom is coming. And the king now commands all to submit to his righteous rule and reign. To enter the kingdom, you must die to yourself. You need to die to your own kingdom. Consider your own kingdom dreams. 
dead. And you can entrust God with your dreams. He will withhold no good thing from those who walk uprightly. But your life, your dreams, what he gives or chooses not to give to you is good and right. And you say, I am living in your kingdom. And you must trust only in the life and the death and the resurrection of the king. And his is a kingdom that will never end. And he invites us to do the work of the kingdom. Because the king is truly alive. And the kingdom is truly here. Let us pray. Jesus, you are king. That you would renounce your kingly rights to pursue us. Lord, we only say glorify yourself, make yourself known to more people. We worship you all of our lives. All of our life is yours. All of our money is yours. Our relationships, they're yours. You are king and you are a good king. So now, God, I ask the ways we haven't recognized you are Lord, you are king, would we repent? And would we see? God, I ask if somebody in here realized, man, I, I, don't, I don't do any of that. I'm, I've been my own king. Would they repent and come to the king of kings? Thank you that you will not reject any of those who come to you. And Lord, I ask now that we would worship you. You have extravagantly loved us. You have drawn so close that it has made some of us uncomfortable that you could love us like that. So now we want to worship you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we want to love you and we want to love our neighbors as ourselves. We want to see your kingdom come. We know it's not fully here yet. And we yearn for the day where you bring your kingdom fully, where death will be completely defeated. Sickness will be no more. Hunger will be no more. Until that day, we say we believe the kingdom is here, that Jesus is king, and so we will clothe the naked. We will feed the hungry. We will visit the sick because that's the true story. Meet with your people now. Pray this all in the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.